All right, let's, let's look. We're in lesson uh, 22. We're going to finish up the last verses of Hebrews 13, the last verses of this letter. We're going to look at Paul, uh, the writer's uh, final words here. Okay? So, <laughs> notice with me, we're going to talk about, in verses uh, 9 to 16, we're going to look at Christian sacrifices. And then we're going to look at his final words. So let's look with me, first of all, verses 9 through 16. He says, Do not be carried about by various and strange doctrines, for it is good that the heart be established by grace, not with foods which have not profited those who have been occupied with them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary of the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Therefore let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we have no continuing city, for we seek the one to come. Therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. But do not forget to do good and to share, with which such sacrifices God is well pleased. Okay, so let's look here. We're going to look, first of all, at a warning here. We've got to beware of strange doctrines. So the, the writer urges his readers not to be carried away by strange doctrines. All right, let me just stop for a moment. I think this is a good point for all of us here right now. Why? Well, where the church is at in North America is this. We are in a post-Christian, post-modern world. Okay? All right, you might understand the concept of post-Christian, but maybe you don't understand the concept of post-modern. What do you mean by that? Well, most of us here, especially... Uh, if you're if you're older than 30 years old, you lived you grew up in a modern world where it was purely scientific. Do you understand what I'm saying? Where you relied upon the scientists and scientific thought to give you an understanding of the world, and so everything was logical and you just truth was truth. And if it, if it wasn't proven, you didn't go along with it. Now, the younger generation is growing up in a postmodern world where they don't necessarily accept the scientific aspect of the world. And so they're open to anything. Did you understand what I'm saying? They're open to anything. An example of that is just simply watch your TV. What do you mean by that? Well, there are a lot more shows that are very popular right now on TV, especially with younger people, because they are spiritual in their nature. What do you mean by that? Well, they're not spiritual in the sense of Christian spiritual. They're spiritual in the sense of, uh, well, maybe it's about a demon. Or some witches who fight demons. Do you know what I'm saying? Or, or a vampire. Or this, that, or another. Do you, do you understand? They're, they're more than willing to accept anything. And so it's a postmodern world. And so they take that over sometimes into their Christianity. Now, hopefully nobody does that here. But it's, it's not necessarily that it's what, you know, for your generation, the older generation, 30 and plus, 
you were willing to accept the Bible says that, right? If somebody told you this is what the Bible said and they showed it to you, you were willing to accept that. That is not true anymore. So you are open to crazy doctrines, strange doctrines. And it's almost very similar. Actually, folks, what we're getting to in our culture and in our Western world is a culture that is very similar to the culture that the early church was in, where you had various beliefs, pluralistic thinking. Do you understand? Almost even spiritual sometimes. Actually, millennials are a very spiritual generation. Do you understand what I'm saying? Are a very spiritual generation. That doesn't, but let me just say that does not equate in spirituality in a Christian sense. Okay, they're open to anything. They they believe in God, but it's not necessarily the God you believe in, or the God that you accept. It's a God that they believe in, and that's just as valid to them. But he's saying to us as believers here, he's urging us not to be carried away by strange doctrines. I'm going to talk a little bit more about that here in a moment. The writer states that it's good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace. Now, what in the world does that mean, George? It's good that our hearts be strengthened by grace. When he's talking about your heart, you understand, the concept of the heart among the Hebrews, because this guy's obviously writing to Hebrew Christians, is more than just that muscle beating in your chest. The concept of your heart includes your emotions and your mind. It's your whole of who you are. And so what he's saying is the whole of who you are needs to be strengthened by grace. Now, what in the world does that mean? Well, let's understand what grace is. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. Unmerited favor. So you and the whole being of who you are needs to be strengthened by the grace of Jesus. Now, what does that mean? Anybody know what the grace of Jesus is? Okay, the forgiveness of your sins, the acceptance with God, based upon something that you had no control over, which was what? The cross. Yes, the cross. So, if I'm going to beware... Notice something. He's just not throwing out arbitrary thoughts here. They're connected together. If I'm going to be... On guard against crazy teaching in this age. I need to strengthen who I am as a person, my heart, my emotion, and my mind with grace. Grace is what? The grace of Christ, which is an understanding of the cross, what he did for you. I need to strengthen myself in my salvation. Did you understand what I'm saying? That's how you guard yourself against crazy doctrines. Crazy stuff that's out there, okay? And it's out there. So, in fact, he connects it here, I think was an interesting thing. He connects it with legalism. Look at what he says there in verse 9. Not with foods which have not profited those who are occupied with them. It's not, what he's saying here is it's not profitable to be focused on legalism. In particular, he's talking about some crazy doctrines, probably Jewish doctrines that said that they had to only eat certain foods. Do you you understand what I'm saying? Kosher foods or whatever, foods that were Levitical in the law. And you know what? It's amazing to me how many times 
I see Christians who should know better still struggling with the same thing. Somebody telling them, to, in order to be a good Christian, you shouldn't eat this way. But do you understand, there are many scriptures, this is one of them, in the New Testament that tell you, you are not bound to eat according to the Old Testament laws. Do you understand? I just heard this week, there's, there's a new thing about eating like Adam and Eve. Eating like Adam and Eve. Really? <laughs> I mean, I at least know what the Bible says about Old Testament eating habits. I don't know what Adam... I know what they shouldn't have ate. Did you know what I'm saying? I don't know... Yeah. <laughs> That's good, Bruce, the no-fruit diet. Well, and I know there wasn't any meat there, so what kind of vegetables were they, okay? Okay. All right, so it's no fruit, no meat. Who knows, okay? Uh, so no fish or chicken. It was probably a pure vegan diet or something. You know what I'm saying? Ugh. Okay. Here, you're going to have people come to you and they're going to say to you, you know, in this day and age, you've already had it happen. Some of you have been in churches where you were told that your acceptance with God is based upon how you look in church, how you dress. You were told your acceptance with God is based upon how much you give in the offering plate. Your acceptance with God is based upon what Bible you carry. Your acceptance with God is based upon how many times you're walking through the door or how much you're serving or how many people you're leading to Jesus. Do you understand? Those are strange doctrines. Now, how do I guard myself? He's already told me that I reinforce in my life grace. Can I tell you how? Whenever I hear somebody who's given into some kind of crazy teaching or crazy thought or crazy legalism, I already know that there's something that they're not doing. They're not studying the Bible for themselves. Do you understand what I'm saying? They're not understanding and studying the Bible for themselves. Because you cannot read through Paul's epistles or anybody associated with Paul. Obviously, this writer, I believe, was associated with Paul. Some people say it was Paul. I don't think so. You cannot read through these epistles in the New Testament and not realize that they are talking to people about not having the gift of salvation ripped from them because they go and pose on themselves the law again. So you've got to be on guard. And the best way to be on guard, folks, especially against crazy teaching, is to be a man and woman of what? The Word of God. Okay? So let's go on here. Some false teachers taught their readers to submit to mosaic dietary laws. So no bacon. Man, I love bacon. You know, the crispier the better. The saltier the better. Okay? Some false teachers. So this is the legalism, the mosaic laws. Alright? Now, the writer calls his readers to remember that they have a better altar. So he's going to shift now He's notice how his thinking's going. He's talking about beware of these strange doctrines. You've got to reinforce in your life grace. And and of course, don't give in to these crazy dietary laws. So he's gonna go and here's how he's gonna re- he's going back to where that section about reminding you about grace. He's gonna focus to you on a better altar. Again, contrasting the two systems. The old system, the old covenant, the old law, and the new covenant. The new relationship. So he's going to contrast them. And what he's going to do here is he's going to use the concept of an altar 
which they would be familiar with, as a way to under, help us understand not to give in to those crazy, crazy dietary laws or crazy strange teachings. He's going to tell us here that we're to remember that we have a, a better, a better altar. So what is he saying here? It was a custom that the priest received their food from the altar. So under the old system, the old covenant, the Mosaic law, the priests didn't work except in the temple. So how did they get, how did they get food? Well, according to Mo- Moses, the Levitical priests were to take a portion of what was brought to them in the temple for themselves. So they took a portion of the meat. They took a portion of the grain offerings that were brought, that weren't burnt. They took a portion of all of that. There was wine that was brought and offered in the altar. So they took a portion of all of that. So they sustained themselves from the food that was brought or the sacrifices that were brought into the temple. That was the custom of the old system. And those who hold the old covenant cannot partake of a better altar, is what he's saying here. So if if you're holding on to... This concept, what he's saying here, if you're holding on to the concept that your acceptance with God is based upon your keeping these laws, you can't partake in a new system, the new altar. That's a scary thought, isn't it? Because here's the thing. How many times have you met somebody who's a Christian, but their concept of their acceptance with God is not Jesus but their church attendance. They're tithing. They're having the right Bible. They're not eating in the wrong restaurant. The wrong restaurant? Believe me. How many of you remember that? You can't go to a place because it had... I remember, can't go to the branding iron because it had a bar there. You know? Your concept, if that's your concept of your acceptance with God is based upon what you do, Here's the thing. There's some question about where you're really at in your salvation. Because salvation is not based upon what you do, right? It's based upon who, folks? What Jesus did for you. Are you resting in what Jesus did for you? Not what type of suit you're wearing to church, or ladies, whether or not you're wearing slacks or a dress to church. Do you understand what I'm saying? Or even how much faith you have. It's, it's a question of, you can't partake in the new altar if that's where you're at, because your mind is divided. Now you say, George, are you sure? Are you saying that possibly they're not saved? Folks, 20 years ago, George Barna did an interesting study. He did a survey among those who claimed to be born again, and what he found was is that more than half of people who claim to be born again are trusting in something else other than Jesus Christ for their salvation. Wow! What could they be trusting in? Coming from the right family, going to the right church, doing all the right stuff. You know what? And the conclusion is they're not saved. I don't know if a preacher or a theologian anywhere would say that they're saved. If you're trusting in something other than Jesus Christ for your salvation, you're not saved. Do you understand what I'm saying? You're not saved. I don't care how many times you prayed that prayer, how many times you got dunked in the, in the baptismal, 
or sprinkled or whatever. Okay? Here's the thing. According to the law, the bodies of the sacrifice, according to the Old Testament law, I mean, think about it. They were continually sacrificing. What in the world did they do with all those animals that they slaughtered? I mean, sure, they could feed themselves from it. But, I, I mean, they didn't have refrigeration, so they're not freezing every carcass. So what in the world did they do with all of these animals? Well, they were supposed to take them outside of the city and burn them. They were destroyed outside of the city and burnt. Okay? And I think that's the Kidron Valley is where that took place. All right? So, in order to sanctify believers, Jesus suffered where? Outside of the city. See, we have a better altar. Did you understand what I'm saying? A better altar. Jesus suffered outside of the city. So the readers are called to go to Jesus and suffer as he did. What? Here, I want you to understand. We're going to talk about it this morning in the morning message as well. I want you to understand that to follow Jesus is to suffer. You want to write that down? To follow Jesus is to suffer. Now, suffering takes many different forms. What do you mean, George? It doesn't mean outright persecution. But you have an enemy who attacks you. He can attack you with sickness. He can attack you at your work. Did you understand what I'm saying? He attacks you in so many different ways. It's all suffering. If you're a believer in Christ, you are not immune from difficulties. Just count on it. Count on it. And what he's saying is, is we in the new altar, are to go to Jesus outside the camp because that's where he suffered for us, knowing that we're going to suffer too. In fact, look at what he says. I I like it the way he says it. Verse 13. Therefore, let us go forth to him outside the camp, and here's the concept of suffering, bearing his reproach. You know, I met a man, uh, I was only a Christian for about... Uh, this would have been 1986, fall of 1986. Uh, he was an exiled pastor from Romania. Back that in 1986, Romania was still a communist country. His name was Joseph Tan. Brad probably heard him. He came to Liberty. But I, I met him in South Carolina. I got to drive him around. But I, I remember he, he developed a theology of suffering, a theology of martyrdom. And he told a story about how when he had been arrested by the secret police, they, uh, what happened was, is that they would be interrogating, interrogating him, and then this general walked in, and he motioned for everybody to leave. So that he was in the room alone with the general, and then he said the general then, because there were no witnesses, because it's illegal to torture somebody in a communist country, do you know that, okay? The general proceeded to beat him. And he started yelling, screaming, because he was being beaten said, next day, same routine. Because Joseph was the pastor of the largest Baptist church in Romania at the time. Okay? The next day, same routine. There's the interrogators. They're all interrogating him. And the general walks in. He motions for everybody to leave. And Joseph says he braced himself, but he said to the general, before you begin, I need to tell you something. And uh, the general said, what? What? 
He said, well, I need to apologize. The general said, what are you apologizing for? He said, well, the last time you were in here and you beat me, I screamed. I need to apologize for screaming. Why would you do that? Well, I realized that this is the Holy Week. And this is the week in which Jesus suffered for me. And that I was counted worthy to suffer as he did in this week. And I should have held my tongue. He said the general was dumbfounded, sat down and didn't beat him. That's, folks, we're to bear his reproach. Do you understand what I'm saying? Next time you go through a problem, our normal response is to say, Why is this happening to me? Because you bear the name of Jesus. And it comes in different forms, folks. It's not just outright persecution. It's sickness. It's a layoff slip. It's all kinds of things. Disease. Do you understand what I'm saying? Financial hardships. Readers are called to go to Jesus and suffer as he did. Our hope is not found here, but in the city that is to come. So he's going to back it up. He's going to talk now. We're to go to him because our hope, and we're, we're to carry that reproach because our hope isn't here, folks. Our hope is where? In heaven, with Christ. You know that. I know that. You know, I laugh every time I go along the river on Old Town, and I see the sign, I want America that I grew up in. First of all, was it perfect when you grew up in America then? No, it isn't. wasn't perfect. It's never going to be perfect here. And, it, and you know what? Do you have any control? How many of you have the, have the cosmic control button in your house that makes sure that everything is perfect in your culture and in your world right now? So you can press the button and it's going to stay the same as long as you're alive. Anybody got that button? Because we have some suggestions as to what needs to change. Okay? Because we have no, you have no control over it. How many of you had control when the economy crashed in 2008? Anybody have any control over that? Some of you here who are older remember working in the cheese plant. How many of you had any control over that? None. See, this is my, this is the reality. Our hope isn't here. Our hope is where, folks? In heaven. See, we've forgotten, we've gotten so comfortable with what we have. Do you know what I'm saying? Hey, our hope isn't in Black Friday. Here's what, so here's what we're doing. We are to continually offer praise and thanksgiving to God. Okay, he just said we're to go to Jesus and bear his reproach. We're going to suffer. But our hope is somewhere else. And so now he's telling us we're to give thanks. Why? Because, folks, you can give thanks in the midst of your difficulty. Because no matter what happens to you here, you have a hope. Did you understand what I'm saying? You have a hope. I'm going to tell you right now, the number one way the enemy is going to attack you in your spiritual life, because he can't take away your salvation, is to get you defeated now. How does he get you defeated now? Causing you to look at your circumstances and to be distracted by that and be down in the mouth about it, rather than looking to the hope that you have beyond here and giving thanks continually to the Lord. He, he, can I be honest with you? 
you know, I'm realizing this as a pastor, that most of our opposition is mental. Is the war within ourselves. Do you realize that? If you thought about that, if you get older and mature in Christ, you'll realize it. That he doesn't attack you with outright persecution. He will attack you with thoughts, self-doubts, accusations. Do you understand what I'm saying? Temptations. It's not... I mean, I I think I can handle the guy who's mad at me at work. But I can't... I don't sometimes know what to do when I start doubting myself. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's easier to deal with a guy that you're... I just avoid him. Can you avoid your thoughts? So he goes on. And he tells us one other thing here before we get to the final words. Doing good and sharing with others are personal sacrifices that please God. So the reality is, is what he's saying here is, is then I need to be willing to sacrifice for others. I need to be willing to be there for others. I'm willing to drop, I need to be willing to drop other things for others. Because that is what is acceptable to God. Did you understand what I'm saying? What is acceptable to God is you being there for others. Wow, you can't, that's just powerful. The verse speaks for itself. Okay, so let's look at verses 17 through 25. And then we'll look at what his closing arguments here, his closing thoughts are. Here's what he says. We're going to have some interesting discussion over these. Look look at verse 17. Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch for your souls as those who must give an account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. Pray for us, for we are confident that we have a good conscience in all things, desiring to live honorable. But I especially urge you to do this, that I may be restored to you the sooner. Now may the God of peace, who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And I appeal to you, brethren, bear with the word of exhortation, for I've written to you in few words. Know that our brother Timothy has been set free, with whom I shall see you if he comes shortly. Greet all those who rule over you from all the saints. Those from Italy greet you. Grace be with you all. Amen. Okay, here's a couple things. The first one I know we're going to have a little bit of discussion about, and that's obedience to leadership. The writer calls us to obey. He calls his readers to obey their spiritual leaders. The writer calls his readers to obey their spiritual leaders. Can't get any straightforward in that. Now, having said that, and when he's talking about spiritual leaders, he's not talking about obey Billy Graham. He's talking about your local leaders of your assembly. That's what he's talking about. Okay? So, why is that 
Some of you are immediately going to be like, wait, I see what it says, but you're concerned. Why are you concerned? Let's hear you. I know you got concerns about that. Go ahead. Especially some of you, you've been in a church where maybe the leader was autocratic. A better way for it is a dictator. Okay? What's your concerns? I knew you, I knew, I was expecting. Oh! So let's hear. Alright, Sue. Okay, that's true. There are churches like that. Now here's how I would answer that. What that, what they are doing there is wrong. To put one leader above everyone else. Anybody know why? Biblically. Even from this verse. Look at this verse. Look at verse 17. I think there's a key word there that will tell you why you can't just put one leader up. You just said it. Leaders. The word is plural. So that means that in their assembly, they have a plurality of leaders, not one guy. Do you understand? Not one guy. Because the, the fact of the matter is, is that, uh, you know, I'm a pastor, but that does not mean that I'm superior to the men who are in the leadership of our church. Do you understand? Nor should I ever begin to think that way. Because when you think that way, then you become a what? A dictator. So the issue is, is that I obey my spiritual, is it leader or leaders? Leaders. Okay, so we're talking about a plurality. So what happens is, is that sometimes in a church we can develop a mindset where we think that the one guy is it. Okay, and that's a dictatorship. You're not going to find that anywhere in the Bible. In fact, let me give you a a letter to read where that is actually rebuked. It's 3 John. The letter is 3 John. It's only 13 verses long. If you read it, there's a guy by the name of Diotrephes who is being rebuked by John the Apostle because he's doing, he's the one who's telling people what they can and can't do in the church. He's the one who's disciplining people out of the church. And he's basically, the apostle says, I'm going to come and deal with him. I'm going to set him straight. Okay? So a dictatorship is not, there has to be a plurality of leaders. Okay? We have a plurality in our church. You know? You know, I've been here 14 years. I can tell you, there are a lot of times where I was told no. Okay? You just get over that. Because the men will tell you, not everybody gets what they think should happen, right? And I don't have a vote. And if the men say no, the, the word's no. Because we're, a, we're it's collective. Do you understand what I'm saying? So, okay, anybody else got a concern? When we talk about submitting to leaders, what's the other concern? I, I didn't hear anybody. Uh, no, we're not talking about political leaders, John. Thankfully, we are not talking about political leaders here. Okay? What he's talking about here is obedience to leaders in your church. Because look at what he says. They rule over your souls. They're, they're concerned about your souls. The text talks about spiritual leaders here. Okay. 
Okay, then there's a way to approach it. There's a biblical way to approach it. When you bring an accusation against an elder, you're to have, what, two witnesses. You go through the process. And here's the thing. If the process doesn't bear fruit, the process doesn't bear fruit, get out of there. Mm-hmm. Many. Like we have ten here in Kerwinsville. That's exactly right. If the leadership doesn't change, if, if, if it's not dealt with, if the leadership doesn't police itself, the leadership doesn't police itself. Did you understand what I'm saying? Hey, you know what? Hey, I'm going to be honest with you. Yeah, I've been here 14 years. I want to be here a long time. But at some point, I'm not going to be here. Does everybody understand that? I mean, I could die. That's real. All right? I might not be here. You're going to get another pastor. Do you understand? A church, I'm not 75, I'm not 95 years old, been the pastor for 75 years here. Do you understand? 14 years is a long time for any pastor to be in a church. Period. So you're going to have another pastor at one time. Just bear the reality of that. Now, here's the thing. You need to be a little bit aware and don't just pick the guy because he speaks good. That's how churches elect pastors, listening to their speeches. You know what? The number one trait of a false teacher is what? He speaks good. You need to ask questions about what he believes. If he doesn't line up with you, don't take him as your pastor. Do you understand? Don't take him as your pastor. And don't think, oh, well, he'll just change. No, you'll change. And you'll quietly leave. And the church won't be the same anymore. Do you understand what I'm saying? You need to obey your leaders, but realize there, there's, there's a structure. Let's go on, because we want to get through this lesson, because we do have Colossians to get through next week. The leaders are accountable to God to watch over the spiritual well-being of believers. You know what? Here's the thing. Over and over in the New Testament, it tells us that those who are leaders must be held to a greater judgment. Bottom line. Folks, I'm, I am accountable to God more so than you are. I've got to answer to a greater judgment. Really? Yeah, because I'm the one teaching you. I'm the one teaching you. If I don't live by the words that I teach you, guess what? That's a judgment. I'm going to be measured by the standard of which I, 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 I lead you. So obey your leaders because recognize your leaders are accountable to God. Now, we've got to remind ourselves of that. And a lot of leaders today that need to be remembering that. They're going to give an account for how they lead. Here's the other thing. Spiritual leadership should be a joy rather than a grief, which doesn't do anybody any good. You know what I mean. He's basically saying to them, obey your leaders, but don't, don't cause them needless grief. Because if you cause them needless grief, it's, it's only going to affect you. Have you ever noticed a pastor, have you ever been in, some of you have been in church where there's conflict going on? What's the pastor like during that? I mean, you, I can almost guarantee you he carries it into the pulpit. You know what I mean? It's not like, oh, i got this weight, people are really, I've got this problem, I'm mad at this person, and I'm mad at that person, and this person's mad at me, but when I get up in the pulpit... 
It's all gone. I'm perfect now. I can share with you. And then I pick it up as I, no, he carries it in there. Doesn't do anybody good. No, it doesn't do anybody good. That's the point he's making here. All right, let's go on. The readers are called to pray for spiritual leadership to live honorably. You gotta, you gotta pray for your leaders. You know what? We have Eight men besides myself who are leaders in this church. Eight men besides myself. Do you know who they are? Do you pray for them? Because I'm going to tell you right now, they got a big bullseye tattooed on their chest. A spiritual bullseye. You need to pray for them. Do you understand what he's saying? You need to pray for them. You need to pray for me. I mean, it goes without saying you got to pray for me. To live honorably. Here's the other thing. The writer calls his readers to pray that he can return to them. So he's, he's wanting to go see them. So he's saying, hey, guys, pray for me that I can return to you, that I can come to you. And then the writer pronounces a doxology where he asks God to make his readers complete. See, this is the concern. He he's really is concerned about their spiritual well-being. He wants them to be complete. Otherwise, another word for that is, is he wants them to be mature. You know, you know what I'm saying? As a pastor, I, am not, I don't want people just to get saved. Oh, wonderful, they're going to be taken care of in heaven. I don't want babies around. I want people to become spiritually mature. Do you understand what I'm saying? To grow. If you're not growing, you're either dead or dumb. Do you understand what I'm saying? You need to grow. You need to be growing in your spiritual life. Look, if you can't look at your life right now and say a year ago you've grown some, there's a problem. If you're the same now as you were 20 years ago, there's a problem. He is concerned about them being what? Complete. I'm concerned about you maturing. Well, you know, George, I'm still struggling. Yeah, I understand you're still struggling. We're all struggling. But are you growing? Are you growing? Okay. The writer calls his readers to listen to what he said in this letter. So he, I think this is good. Pay attention to what he said in this letter. Pay attention to what we've talked about here. And then he concludes with a couple of other things here. Number one, he reports that Timothy, Timothy was freed and will be coming to them shortly. Okay. See that in verse 23. The writer sends greetings to the spiritual leaders and the believers. So he's going to, this is a letter. So of course he's going to say that, hey, by the way, tell people there I said hi. Okay. We still do that, right? And then believers in Italy send their greetings. Hey, all the folks who are with me, say hi too. And then here's the blessing. The writer pronounces a blessing of grace on his readers. That's it. That's Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 13. 